0: Okay, well, welcome everybody to our study of Taking God at His Word by Kevin DeYoung. I'd like to kick off our study with a prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would use this time to give us a deep and profound appreciation for your written word. I pray that you would give us hearts that would be committed to studying and doing and teaching the Word of God and we ask that you would bless our time together this morning as we prepare our hearts to receive your word in our upcoming sermon we pray all these things in Jesus name Amen taking God at his word by Kevin DeYoung has eight chapters and this morning We will be studying Chapter 2 entitled, Something More Sure. In our last chapter, we looked at Believing, Feeling, and Doing with Dennis, and the topic of our next chapter will be God's Word is Enough on the sufficiency of Scripture. As a reminder, our author, Kevin DeYoung, is, the, is currently the senior pastor at Christ Covenant Church in Matthews, North Carolina. Uh, DeYoung is a member of the Gospel Coalition's Council. He also contributes articles to various other evangelical organizations, such as World Magazine, Nine Marks, and Desiring God. I don't know how many notice, but whenever I lead the congregation in the call to worship, I always ask everyone to receive the text not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. This is a reference to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. But after reading this chapter and taking God at His Word by Kevin DeYoung, I wonder if saying that phrase is actually communicating what I intend to communicate. In this lesson, we're going to be asking ourselves: what is the Word of God? What does that phrase mean? What does it entail? Do we understand it in the same way as, say, the Westminster Divines did? Do we understand it in the same way that the church has historically understood it? And maybe most importantly, do we understand it as it was intended by the apostolic authors? We're going to answer these questions by looking at the second epistle of Peter, chapter 1. But first we're going to look at chapter 1 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Reading from the Westminster Confession, Chapter 1 of the Holy Scripture, Paragraph 8. The Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations, being immediately inspired by God and, by his singular care and providence, kept pure in all ages and therefore, authentical so as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal unto them. This is the first half of that paragraph. So let's get the discussion going with a few questions. What do you think right here is meant by the phrase immediately inspired? Have any ideas about that? where it's saying that the Hebrew text and the New Testament Greek text were immediately inspired? When it was spoken, okay? When it, re- when it was received, the revelation was immediate? Do you think that anything else is being communicated by immediate? No chance for editing between when it was received and when it was uh, inscripturated? Okay. Oh, so it didn't become the word of God, right? Okay. So yeah, this is saying something about the autographs, right? Which was the, the, the first writings, that they did not become the word of God, right? Um, here's another question. So if well, we I've used this word autographs, the first writings. Are do you think that the accurate copies of these first writings can still be considered the word of God if they were accurately copied? Or were only the you know the first writings, the, the original writings where they considered the word of God and everything else is just a copy of those? We're going step by step away from the original, and at what point does something not become not the Word of God, right? So is like is a accurate copy of the original still the Word of God? Yes, okay. Um, what about a um, what about a translation of the copy? It, is a, does translating the uh, copy or translating the original into a different language make it not the word of God? N- no, no? Still the word of God. Still the word of God. Okay. Um, we might look at the Septuagint, which was a the Greek translation of the original Hebrew um, for that was, you know, and that Greek translation was directly quoted by New Testament authors as and, and called the Word of God, right? So certainly the apostles saw saw a uh translation as the as no less uh inspired than the original, right? Did you have something, Brad? I was just gonna say to the degree that it is accurate. Okay, to the degree that it's accurate. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's Let's keep reading as we get further into this topic. So continuing need to read from uh, ch- chapter one, paragraph eight, but because these original tongues are not known to all the people of God who have right unto and interest in the scriptures and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them, Therefore, they are to be translated into the vulgar language of every nation nation, unto which they come, that the word of God, dwelling plentifully in all, they may worship him in an acceptable manner, and through patience and comfort of of the scriptures may have hope. So let's continue with a few more questions. Um, Let's think about in our context. How should we choose our Bible translations? And are all translations still the word of God, right? So let's, uh, if we look at, go ahead. If we look at uh, um, word for word translations like we typically use in our church, we have examples like the ESV or NASB or something like the New King James Version, these are word-for-word translations, are those to be considered the Word of God? Yes. Everybody still okay with yes on that one? To the degree that they're word-for-word translations, right, so what about when we get into something, well, let's go to the other end. What if it's something that's like a paraphrase, like the Message Bible or the Living Bible? Would you consider something like that the Word of God? Because at this point, now we're doing like a paragraph by paragraph paraphrase, right? So there's there's no longer a direct, direct translation at all, and it's not intended to be a direct translation. And the, and the Holy Spirit working in that, right? So we want to say that the Holy Spirit ordinarily works through Scripture, right? Through the literal word, uh, but that doesn't mean that he cannot work apart, you know? but that would be extraordinary though, right? But, okay, well, let's talk about the King James Version, right, the, the words here say that it should be, the, the words should be translated into, the, into vulgar languages, right? So is the King James Version still something that we ought to be using since it's no longer in the common tongue? It, I, I don't know that it's even, I mean, that you can consider it the, the language of this country, you know? the language is foreign to the normal person in this country. Should we have some hesitation about using the King James version? Go ahead. Right, because of the imperative that it has on the people, right, the people are to understand and obey and if they can't understand and obey, then then there's something broken there, right? Okay, so I think, we're ready now that we have some of these ideas in our head to investigate the questions further by looking at the second epistle of Peter chapter 1. So in accordance with Kevin DeYoung this is going to be a brief overview. The second letter of Peter or second letter of Peter is an exhortation to godliness. In verses 3 through 11 of chapter 1 we see the power for godliness in God's great and precious promises the pattern in the virtues that can be added to faith, and the premise for godliness in our calling and election. Then in verses 12 through 15, Peter reiterates his intention to remind his readers of these qualities before he dies. Peter's concern is that false teachers will creep into the church promising freedom and will end up leading the people into sensuality and spiritual bondage instead the exhortation therefore is to ignore these false teachers and pursue holiness and one of the fa- one of the chief chief reasons for doing so is the future coming of Christ when the day of the lord arrives the world will be destroyed our works will be exposed and the ungodly judged in this epistle and throughout the new testament the second coming of Christ serves as a profound motivation for turning aside from wickedness and making every effort to live an upright and virtuous life. We do not want to be found engaged in unholy deeds when the Holy One returns. That's Peter's argument, but the false teachers doubted that the Lord would come again in some cataclysmic day of the Lord. They did not believe in the day of judgment so Peter aims in his epistle to convince the faithful contrary to the false teachers that Christ is coming again to judge the living and the dead. So our text for today will be 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 16 through 21 which reads as follows. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts knowing this first of all that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So going back to verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of the, his majesty. What do you think the apostle Peter is distancing himself from when he says, when he says right here, cleverly devised myths? Okay, so he's, he might be referencing their, their immediate context, Epicureans, right? Um, the, the myths that were dominant in their society what's what's different between a devised myth and what peter is trying to communicate he saw it and heard it so it was experienced right right so it was like a story that was trying to it would provide an understanding of something you know but it wasn't an immediate experience right so a myth of course Is an effective tale, right? And it doesn't reflect on the truths of history. But Peter desires that when we think about his message, that we think about it not just as a myth, but as something that touches history. Again, when we think about Peter's message, it is one that pertains to the present order of things, but also looks forward to a new order, and Peter is saying that it is not a myth, but it is true history, okay? So in accordance with Kevin D. Young, he says it this way, the Greeks and Romans had lots of myths. They didn't care whether the stories were literally true no one was interested in the historical evidence for the claim that Hercules was the illegitimate son of Zeus. Okay? It was a myth, a fable, a tall tale, a story to entertain and make sense of the world. Paganism was built on the power of mythology, but Christianity saw itself as an entirely different kind of religion. Go ahead. Right, as as an ultimate source, right? Okay, so let's, uh, we're going to be addressing all of these topics that you just brought up, so that's good. So we're going to be talking about eyewitness and also how it points to Old Testament realities, right? So let's continue on. And Peter, so... <clears throat> Peter begins then, like you're saying, with the word eyewitness. Peter appeals to himself against this idea that they've presented, or the idea of a myth, right? He presents himself as an eyewitness when he says here in verse 16, again, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Where these words, power and coming, right here, Uh, This is a pointer to chapter 3, he's coming with fire to purge and destroy and to cleanse the earth, and it looks forward to Christ's return, uh, where he says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, before we jump into the eyewitness account, which we're going to appeal to, I think it's important for us to think about the redemptive historical role of an eyewitness, scripturally, right? Um, in accordance with Kevin D. Young, uh, it's as if Peter is saying, Look, I saw the, configura- the transfiguration, and I was not alone. We heard it, and we were eyewitnesses and earwitnesses. We're not making this up to scare you. We are not passing along intriguing stories or clever tales. We are telling you what happened. We saw his glory. We saw it with our own eyes. We heard God speaking audibly. This was not an experience in our hearts or a vision in our souls. If you had been on the mountain, you would have seen and heard the same things. We are talking about fact, not a fable. But let me ask a question here Are we also eyewitnesses of God's revelation? We have a yes. Is there a, a sense that that we, that we are, and a sense that we're not? Marty's going for a yes on that one. Go ahead. Right, right. So there's there's a sense that Peter was an eyewitness to revelation that we cannot claim that same sort of experience, right? Um, some people do. That's true. So. <laughs> That's not what this lesson is about. <laughs> um, are, so, are we eyewitnesses in the same sense as the Apostle Peter? Uh, in the sense that Peter can cite his own testimony as authoritative. Right? What do you think about, or what do you think the Apostle Peter has in mind here when he uses the term eyewitness? That's what we're trying to answer. So, to answer some of these biblical theological questions, I'm going to pull from some work by Daniel Ragusa. Um, It's so it's very important for us then to realize that when Peter refers to himself as an eyewitness that he's not speaking about himself in a general sense that applies to everybody, but rather in a unique sense. That within redemptive history, Christ has appointed and equipped men, apostles, to bear testimony before the whole of history. So their testimonies are not merely to revelation as if merely to the transfiguration and what was revealed there, but it but their testimony itself is part of that history of revelation. Right? So that's something that we cannot claim. But some do, it's true. We can't or we can point to or we can deliver God's revelation to others. Um, but Peter's testimony was itself part of that revelation. I think this is what we confess when we confess that the church is apostolic, that it continues to be founded upon the words of the apostles, that we continue to preach the very same gospel, we testify to the same realities within the history of redemption that the apostles testify to. And so after establishing himself as an eyewitness, Peter then appeals to the transfiguration in verse 17 where he says, for when he received honor and glory from God, the father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Now there's a big question to think about here. In what sense does Jesus's transfiguration guarantee his return? Obviously there's a point of connection here, but it may not be so apparent. What does transfiguration have to do with his return? Heavenly form. So what does that communicate about him? Yeah, he's 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 more than man, right? He for sure. It's, it's it's it was communicating to them immediately that he was God, right, right. That the Shekinah glory was um, the Shekinah glory that we associate with God is is something that is not separate from Christ, right? This this is something that was communicated here, um, and so let's let's dig into this a little bit here. So I think one way of getting at this is to see the Old Testament background, especially of Psalm 2, as Blake Autry read for the church in our congregational prayer last week, and we'll probably be touching a little bit more on in the sermon today, we'll see that specifically in terms of the voice from heaven speaking of Jesus as my beloved son, that it took place on the holy mountain, and that... And then he says to ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, right? So let's read Psalm 2 real quick for our study here. I'm going to have it up on the screen as well. Um, So Psalm 2, Why, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so, what Peter then is getting at here is that the Father from heaven has spoken a definitive word as to the identity of who Jesus Christ is. And because of Jesus' identity as the Son of Psalm 2, he must come again. If the nations are His inheritance and they will perish in the way lest they kiss, kiss him, then He must return to realize that reality. It was a common idea in the Jewish mind and in Peter's mind to have two witnesses. For example, Deuteronomy 19 verse 5 says that a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense is committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. So Peter will now bring forth a new witness which he refers to as the prophetic word. But one thing to note before we move on is that not only do those two witnesses agree, but that it is also witnessed by God as triune. And it's very interesting if you look at these verses up here, how it's the father whose voice was born in verse 17. And then at verse 21, it is the Holy Spirit who carried along the prophets and the prophetic word in a doctrine of inspiration. And then more than that, it's none other than the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, as, he, as it says in chapter 3, verse 2, that you should remember. So as the Father bears witness to the Son and the Spirit carries along the prophets writing the scriptures, and the Son through his apostles delivers his commandments and his word to us, so we also find a Trinitarian witness to this very gospel reality, the message that the Apostle Peter holds out for us. So let me read our text one more time. So back to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow... Cleverly devised myths when we were made known to you, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, and we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns, And the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the question we have before us now is what is this prophetic word? Have any ideas about that? The coming of the Lord. So uh, you're talking about like specific prophecies from the Old Testament, okay? Any other ideas? So you're you're, you're understanding it more in a in a broader sense, right? And scripturated, it's a concrete sort of thing, right? Okay, so a number of commentators have taken this to refer specifically to the Old Testament prophecies, and so to understand it in a very narrow sense. However, I would argue that the prophetic word here is referring to really to the whole Old Testament, and the reason that I would make this argument is because of what Peter will go on to say in chapter 2, that in order to... remind the church of their redemptive historical context in which false teachers are to arise. He utilizes Old Testament scriptures and history in order to proclaim that false teachers will come. In other words, he looks at the Old Testament as prophetic in a sense that that which happened uh, then will be repeated or recapitulated on a higher, more elevated scale in the New Testament. And I'm going to show some examples of that. So, for example, reading from chapter 2, this will be uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them how do you know that the Lord is going to destroy false teachers and those who follow them, right? But also in the midst of that judgment, rescue and save his people. So Peter then Peter will appeal again to the Old Testament and say, well, this is how God has operated previously. Right? So for example, in, in Noah and the flood, the flood destroying all of humanity, while rescuing Noah and his family or he would appeal to Lot as the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah Gomorrah and then yet in that destruction rescued righteous Lot as he'll be referred to in chapter 3 or in chapter 2 So when Peter speaks here in this chapter in chapter 1 verse 19 that we have the prophetic word I believe he's not only referencing the specific and narrow prophecies of the Old Testament, but reveals a prophetic idea or prophetic perspective on the Old Testament history itself. That which happened then will happen again on a higher and more escalated scale in the New Testament. So the prophetic word is referring to the Old Testament, which is anticipating that which is to come. And so, and so if we just back out simply and take a look at the way in which the apostle Peter sees his own testimony as organically growing out of the prophetic testimony, we have before us a simple metaphor of a seed being planted and growing. There is not a a disconnect between the two, but in fact, the way that Peter uses the two witnesses to show their organic connection and to show how one flows out of the other so that the apostolic testimony is not unrelated to the Old Testament, but in fact, as he said, more fully confirms it, right? So there's the connection, which shows Peter's own understanding of the way in which the events of the New Testament and the gospel as proclaimed by him grow organically out of the old testament prophecies they looked at the same ultimate f- fulfillment in jesus christ so even so that even as the apostle peter holds before us the future of christ's second coming then that is not something completely new to the new testament he's assuming an organic connection between the old testament and the new testament that is coming through him and the other apostles. And so he speaks of this prophetic word then as a guaranteed word. The second thing is that Peter says that it, it's a guiding word. And he does this by comparing it to a lamp shining in a dark place right here. Now, throughout Second Peter, he often uses language and imagery that has to do with seeing now as in chapter 1 verse 9 as anticipating and the false teachers by speaking of their true condition as those who are blind peter is communicating not only a present blindness but also a blindness to future realities and and here peter is saying that in the midst of this dark world there is a light that illumines for us the path that we we ought to go. He identifies the Old Testament scriptures as the very light that might lead us in the path that we ought to go into the eternal kingdom. So not only darkness, but also the metaphor of God's word as light is found throughout the scriptures as well. And I'll show you an example of that. So actually, this is something that Dennis went through in our lesson in the first chapter, Psalm 119. So behind what Peter is saying in Psalm 119, particularly in verse 105, which I'll read for you right now, um, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. And so when Peter refers to the Old Testament, the prophetic word, as a lamp, he's drawing on this Old Testament imagery to demonstrate the guiding function of God's word, that those who are lost in darkness and under judgment have a light that shows them the way that they ought to go in this life. And so Peter is then saying that the prophetic word which was given in the Old Testament continues to have abiding significance for the life of the Christian today as well. And it is to this word that we ought to pay careful attention, as he says, as a lamp shining in a dark place. So now back to verse 19. Again, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now, we really don't have a lot of time to get into this one, but because the prophetic word, Peter says, is useful up until... Christ returns, it means that the word all along has been pointing to him and is leading us to him and that when he comes in this sense, the sense that's mentioned here, um, it will no longer be necessary. So there is like a redemptive historical sort of time stamp on the word of God but it remains ever necessary for us even today. Is there any question about that one. Blake, do you have any ideas on that? <laughs> no, you're good with that? Okay, so there's there's a sense in which this language, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, the in your hearts part, right? You might want to say, well, there's a sense in which that is being um, some, as a present reality and there's also a sense that it's a future promise as well because clearly this language here is pointing to the second coming. but it also has an uh, impact on us personally. Okay, so and so uh, Peter then in verses 20 and 21 will go on to explain why it is that we ought to pay attention to this word and why we ought to trust this word as he speaks about it as the very word of God. So reading again, verses 20 and 21. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So when Peter says in verse 20, knowing this, first of all, the language here has in mind that he could bring forth a number of other arguments, right? Um, And we'll investigate some of those in a couple of minutes. But of highest importance as to why it can speak prophetically and it can give us a proper look at the future is that the word ultimately comes not from man, but from God, right? And he also says that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation So it's very likely that what Peter is getting at here is an accusation that the false teachers have raised against the prophets. They might say, well, God may have given the prophets visions, he may have shown them things, but the word that they wrote down is merely just their interpretation of that vision. It's just as fallible as any other man's interpretation of a vision. Why ought we to attribute to that word, such weight and authority to speak of future things. Is it not just a word of man? So Peter here is defending the divine origin of scripture, that it's not merely a fallible witness to God's revelation, but that it itself is the infallible revelation of God. So Kevin DeYoung says on this topic, we must come to the Bible, Calvin teaches, with a reverence that exists only when we are convinced that God speaks to us and not mortal man. We must believe that prophecies, as the indubitable oracles of God, because they have not emanated from men's own private suggestions. The ultimate authorship of scripture, Peter informs us, is God himself. Now we have a couple more minutes, so let's take some time to consider some of the attributes of scripture that testify to the fact that it is God's word. So going back to chapter 1 from the Westminster Confession of the Holy Scripture, and now we're in paragraph 5, and the first half of it reads as follows. We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of Holy Scripture and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give glory, give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies and the entire perfection thereof, so I'm going to stop right here and just want, if you could, uh, who can point out an attribute of scripture and maybe uh, uh, give a couple of words as to what you think it's trying to communicate? What attributes do you see? Um, yeah, just name one and what what do you think it's trying to communicate? Right, and the only way that there could be consistency As if there is only one ultimate author, right? So that would testify to the fact that it is the word of God, right? Right. So a lot of times people understood understand majesty to be like a a literary sense or something like that, you know. But but you're saying that that majesty even um, uh, transcends uh, the, the immediate the original language, right? So, so efficacy means that it can accomplish something, right? So um, it is saying something very profound about the word of God if it has the power to save, right? It has the power to convict, right? Um, it is the primary means that God has ordained to save his people. Um, and if it's accomplishing that purpose, then it that is in and of itself is a testi- testimony to the fact that it is the word of God, right? Um, Art also brought up the... Whoop brought up the, uh, the testimony of the church, right? So what do you think is being communicated? Back to our translation questions before, you know, whose job is it then to uh, provide for the church accurate translations? Who, whose who's, um, responsibility is that? The church. the church, right? right? It is the church's responsibility to ensure that the the translation that we have is accurate. Okay, let me continue reading then from this same paragraph. Still still in paragraph five, um, so let me go to the beginning of the sentence. Maybe um, it says, "So we're in the middle of a list. The full discovery it makes of the whole of the only way of man's salvation." the many other incomparable excellencies and the entire perfection thereof and then we're in this paragraph here saying our arguments thereby it, or whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of god yet notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the holy spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. So why do you think that, as Art mentioned previously, the church here is right up at the top of the list, right? But it says right here, it is certainly not, um, well, it's not the primary, um, uh, I don't know if you wanna say in terms of logical or, it's it's why is why is the church's testimony not not identified here as the primary evidence? It's an it's a piece of evidence, but not the main one, which it identifies as the the inward work of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so I. Does anybody else have any ideas about that one? Go ahead. So you're you're seeing that those are not two distinct things. That is, God testifies to those who believe, and those people who believe are the church, right? Um, so there there may be a little bit of a distinction here in you know what you consider the church is. You know, um, so if you consider the church body of believers and that body of believers are the ones who the holy spirit has inwardly testified to then there's then there is no distinction at this point right so um but that would be also making a distinction between you know historic historic roman catholicism necessarily you know and saying well um if there are those who say that there that this is that the bible is not the bible then then it's uh it's because they are not in this category here we're talking about the inward work of the holy spirit right so if the bible is the word of god then why don't all people receive it as god's word that's that's our natural state right dead in our sins and even even the regenerate are not completely, you know, um, immune from uh, some blindness as well. So uh, naturally, you know, we're a fallen race. Uh, we disregard truth. Uh, we hate the truth, right? We hate authority. Um, these are all reasons why the word of God is not received. Um, so if we focus here on the last one here, the Holy Spirit bearing witness. Um, why is this not mysticism, or why is it not something like gnosticism? Is this saying that the Holy Spirit gives us some special knowledge, or that the Holy Spirit um, ordinarily, you know, works independent of Scripture or something like that? What is what is? What is it that Christianity confesses that is unique to Christianity? right, right um, so so let's let's draw like what's the difference between that and Mormonism when they say you read the Book of Mormon and uh, it will give you uh, burning in your bosom, and that will test that will be the evidence that it is the Word of God, right. So, so Christians are not saying that we have some kind of physical reaction you know, to, to reading God's word. And Christianity is not saying that we have some kind of special knowledge now that's imparted by the Holy Spirit that gives us, it lets us know um, new facts that we didn't have before. But the Holy Spirit is, uh, breaks our hearts to receive God's word as God's word. It, uh, the Holy Spirit convicts us of the truths that are plainly stated in scripture, right? So, right. Right. No. No emotion. No. I don't say no emotion, but but uh yeah, it's it's the the basic the foundation is not emotional. The foundation is not a physical response. The foundation is not some super knowledge or something. Right. Right. No experience. Right. Go ahead. Okay. All right. So. And so Peter here has laid out for us a solid foundation based on, with the basis of two witnesses, the prophets and the apostles, grounded in the triune work of God, for this message that we might believe it and we might not lose heart by going after and buying into the lies of the skeptics who deny an eternal kingdom and who instead attribute eternality to the current order of things rather than that which is to come. So let's wrap up here with a quote from Kevin DeYoung. Do you talk about scripture in the way the apostles talked about scripture? You can think too highly of your interpretations of scripture, but you cannot think too highly of the scripture's interpretation of itself. You can exaggerate your authority in handling the scriptures, but you cannot exaggerate the scripture's authority to handle you. So, and all, and that's all we have for today. Uh, for chapter two, which was entitled Something More Sure. I hope this was an enjoyable conversation for everyone and that you'll join us next time when we're, we're going to be going through chapter three called God's Word is Enough on the Sufficiency of Scripture. That's all I have for today. Thank you.